Hi, Anne. Hi, Freya. How are you? I almost said welcome to another episode of You're Kidding Right, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to another episode of Synapse, our first episode, which is exciting. Mm, it's very exciting. Yes. Thank you very much for inviting us onto the show. We should probably do a little intro because I assume most people listening wouldn't know us, unlike our regular listeners. Mm. So my name is Freya. And I'm Anne. And we're two pediatric trainees in Melbourne. And we run our own little podcast, which is mostly ped stuff, some ped surge and peds medical stuff, but just some kind of general EDGP kind of things as well that's relevant to kids called You're Kidding Right. And that's how we got in touch with Jennifer, Jennifer from Synapse. And she asked us to do an episode on something neurology related that we've we might see in our day-to-day practice. Mm. And here we are. So the podcast, did I say it's called You're Kidding, right? It's on, I assume, the same podcasting platforms as Synapse, but all the kind of main ones. And we release episodes twice a week. And we've got an Instagram as well called You're Kidding, right, doctors. And we do posts related to the episodes. We do little quizzes on the stories. Uh, I don't know, extra little. Oh, I do reels. Yes, you're big on your reels. (laughs) Trying to be a Gen X. Oh, no, Gen Z. No, I'm not trying to be a Gen Gen X. I'm trying to be a Gen Z. Not the old wrinkly millennial I am now. I have such a complex about it. (laughs) All right. I think that's enough chatter, Anne. Mm. What are we talking about today for the Synapse podcast? Mm. So today we are talking about idiopathic intracranial hypertension, which is a condition that is characterized by features of raised intracranial pressure without any other cause of raised intracranial pressure, such as a brain tumor identified. The classic presentation is headache, transient visual changes, and a type of tinnitus that makes a whooshing sound. So tinnitus is that funny sound that like, it's often a ringing sound in a patient's ears, but in this case, it makes like a whooshing sound. It is most common in young adult females, but it can occur at almost any age. The main complication is progressive irreversible vision loss. So Freya, how would idiopathic intracranial hypertension present? Yeah, so there's a few different signs and symptoms. Maybe we should break them up so it's not just a huge long list of me reeling them off. Mm. But I'll talk about the ones that you spoke about first, so the classic kind of triad. So headaches, the big one. Most people with IAH will have some kind of headache and it's typical of that raised ICP headache. So worse in the morning, maybe associated with vomiting. In IAH, pain behind the eyes is also quite common. The other thing you spoke about was transient visual changes, and that's something you can get in IAH. And these are brief episodes of vision loss, and they're often quite common when the person is changing position, and it might be because of the increased transient, kind of transient increase in pressure on top of the already raised ICP that puts the extra little bit of pressure on the optic nerve. And so, you know, they might be bending down or something like that. And it typically lasts last seconds and it can be bilateral or unilateral and they just lose their vision for that period of time. The other thing you mentioned, Anne, was tinnitus and we specifically call it pulsatile tinnitus and that's the whooshing noise in your ears. So kind of um, people say it sounds like flowing water or wind in their ears constantly and we think it's probably because of the CSF flow under high pressure that you can actually hear and it's very suggestive of IAH. 
And can you tell me about some of the other signs of IIH or symptoms as well? Diplopia is another symptom and it's caused by a sixth nerve palsy. And the sixth nerve innervates the lateral rectus muscle, which is required for eye abduction. And this can cause diplopia because if you've got one eye that's slightly off kilter in position, then obviously you're going to get double vision from that. So the sixth nerve palsy is caused by raised ICP and it stretches the nerve during its intracranial course. Another one is papilledema which is optic disc swelling from increased intracranial pressure. And this is usually bilateral and occurs in almost every case of IIH. And And you see that by looking into the eye with an ophthalmoscope, if you're really clever and are good at doing that, which in kids is sometimes quite hard. (laughs) Even checking pupils reactive is hard enough. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. They're just like, no, I don't like the light. Go away. And you're like, no, I'm sorry, but I really need to make sure that this isn't the case. Anyway. I had a kid with a foreign body yesterday at work and she basically smashed all this glass and got some glass in her eye and I tried to, it looked like a crime scene I tried to put um fluorescent dye in her eyes and then look at her eye with the kind of blue light in the ophthalmoscope and I think that dye went everywhere except on her eyeball oh my <laughs> and in the end I had to sedate her with nitrous to do it properly and give her eye a good wash and she had lots of scratches all over the cornea but uh, gave her some Clorsig, gave the first dose under sedation. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm not going to try and put drops in this girl's eye no after way. that ordeal. <laughs> I've learned my lesson. But then I don't know how a parent's going to do four times a day for the next two days until they say up now. Yeah, I know, right. I remember one time I tried to glue a lac above a kid's eye and she ended up. Oh, I did one of them yesterday as well. Also probably should have done it under sedation. Well, yeah, did not she like was it. just <laughs> wriggling around so much that the glue yeah. was like running down towards her. Oh, I was like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Like we had to yeah. like move her head and to make it like blow away. And some of it got into her lashes, but it didn't get into her eye yeah. or glue her eye shut. And I was like, oh, my gosh, well, Just stick close. some falsies on. That's, Free false lash glue. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, we digress. And Papilledema, I think that's where we were. <laughs> that's right. Um, Look so, in the eye with the ophthalmoscope if you dare. <laughs> so usually the papilledema is bilateral and occurs in almost every case of idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Finally, there is vision loss, and usually this happens gradually. It starts with visual field loss and eventually a loss of visual acuity. So you get a swelling of the optic disc where the optic nerve inserts. This then increases the size of your blind spot that everyone has where the optic nerve inserts. Eventually, the pressure actually damages the optic nerve. Permanent vision loss is the most serious consequence of idiopathic intracranial hypertension. And once vision is lost, it usually does not return, even if the intracranial pressure is reduced. So Freya, what are the causes of idiopathic intracranial hypertension? Mm. So as some may have guessed from the name and idiopathic being the key word here, we don't actually know exactly what causes it. It's generally believed that For some reason that we don't quite understand, there is either increased cerebrospinal fluid production or decreased absorption back into the blood. And this results in more CSF and hence more pressure in the brain from that extra CSF. But we don't know why it happens. Mm. 
And what are some of the risk factors for getting IAH? Mm. So some significant risk factors include being female. So 90% of affected patients are female. Obesity, and often it's associated with recent weight gain and pregnancy. Certain medications have also been linked to idiopathic intracranial hypertension, such as Roaccutane, which you may have heard of for acne and things like that, and doxycycline, which is an antibiotic. And the most and the most common age group that it affects is between the ages of eight, of twenty and thirty, but it can occur at any age. Mm, I've seen quite a few kids with it, mostly sort of those adolescent kind of pubescent girls in most cases I've seen. Yeah. So Freya, what, how do you diagnose idiopathic intracranial hypertension? Mm. So the diagnosis is based on having or meeting three criteria. So the first one is you've got to have signs of raised ICP and we spoke about some of them before. The second is you have to have raised ICP with a normal CSF on lumbar puncture. And we'll say how you measure that raised ICP in a second. Uh, And the other is no other cause of raised ICP found. So you haven't done an MRI and seen a big tumor or something, something else that could be causing the raised ICP. So you've got to have signs of raised ICP. You've got to have a normal CSF on the lumbar puncture where you find the raised ICP and no other cause found on imaging or otherwise. Usually the first thing you do for someone with signs of raised ICP is some kind of neuroimaging. So you want to know if there's mainly if there's any other uh, possible cause of it. MRI is ideal for this, plus ideally venography because it's more sensitive for the cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, which was one of our major differentials in IAH. There are some non-specific signs you may see in IAH on MRI, but you're mainly doing it to rule out other causes of raised ICP. If the imaging is normal and they've got all these other symptoms, you'd want to be further investigating that and you'd be suspecting IAH. So, and what would be the next thing you'd do? You've got a normal MRI brain and venogram. What would you want to do next? So the next step would be performing a lumbar puncture. So in IIH, you get a raised opening pressure, which is the pressure at which the CSF shoots out once you enter the subarachnoid space, and it is a surrogate measure of intracranial pressure. And you measure this using a manometer, which is attached to the LP needle, and then you measure how high the CSF goes up the manometer according to the markings on the side. And this pressure is measured in centimetres of water. That's what the unit is called. In adults, the upper limit of normal is 20 to 25 centimetres of water. So if it's higher than 25, it's considered to be definitely raised. A sample of CSF is also taken to do a cell count, protein and glucose levels, plus or minus any other tests to investigate for any other differentials. So you can look for other things like abnormal cells and infective parameters and things like that. Mm. LPs are used for diagnosis, but if the patient has IOH, the removal of some CSF during the procedure may have a bit of a therapeutic effect. Unfortunately, pressure usually creeps up again though pretty quickly and LPs do have their own complications. So repeated LPs are not a mainstay of treatment. If you haven't done it already, a formal visual field assessment and optic disc examination are also very important. So Freya, how would we treat IH? 
Yeah. So the thing to start with, I guess, in the goals of treatment of IAH, you've got two main goals. You want to alleviate the symptoms and they're typically the things like headache and other things that we spoke about before. And your other one's the preservation of vision. And sometimes you need to do different things for each of these two goals. The treatment options for idiopathic intracranial hypertension include acetazolamide, corticosteroids, bruzamide, occasionally repeated lumbar punctures, but as Anne said before, it's not typically a mainstay of treatment, and then surgery. Most cases respond to non-surgical management, but many of you know some of them we will have to do surgery and we'll say what the kind of um, main thing in the presentation that would make us go straight to surgery is in a second as a little cliffhanger. Apart from I'll talk about medications, maybe, or maybe Anne, you can tell us about medications, but I guess an important thing to mention now is um, managing some of the risk factors. And the main modifiable risk factor that we spoke about was patients who are overweight and obese who have had significant recent weight gain. So a major part of treatment for IAH and arguably one of the trickiest treatment options is weight loss for a patient if they are overweight. So, Anne, can you tell us a little bit about the medical management that I just glossed Mm. over? So, firstly, acetazolamide, which is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, is the most commonly used first-line medication. Carbonic anhydrase inhibitors are believed to reduce the rate of CSF production. Topiramate is another carbonic anhydrase inhibitor that is sometimes used. It also has anti-headache and weight loss benefit effects, which is quite useful for this condition. Steroids are sometimes used if acetazolamide doesn't work. If it works, it usually will have an effect after a couple of weeks. Bruzamide is sometimes used in conjunction with acetazolamide and has some carbonic anhydrase inhibitory effects. There is no evidence on its use alone in IAH, however. Freya, we've gone through medical management. Could you talk us a bit through surgical management? Yeah, so surgical management, when we would do it to start with, is indicated in anyone with deteriorating visual function. So even at presentation, if they've got any kind of reduced visual fields or poor vision, then we would go for the surgical management straight away, as well as often medical management at the same time. Or in those who we've done all their medical management and we still haven't managed to treat it adequately and they're still having debilitating symptoms. The two main surgical procedures in IAH are optic nerve sheath fenestration and cerebrospinal fluid shunting procedures. So the first one, optic nerve sheath fenestration, is where you make a cut in the optic nerve sheath into the subarachnoid space and essentially relieve the pressure on the nerve. CSF shunting includes BP shunting or LPS shunting where you create a connection between the ventricles or the subarachnoid space in the spinal column, and then the peritoneal cavity in the abdomen, so the CSF can drain straight into the peritoneal cavity. There are a lot of complications associated with shunt, so this tends to be the last resort, but sometimes you just need to do it. All right, so that's a lot of information, Anne. Can you give me a quick summary of idiopathic intracranial hypertension? Yes. So so IIH is a condition characterized by features of raised ICP without any other cause identified. The main complication is progressive vision loss. The classic presentation is signs of increased intracranial pressure, such as headache, transient visual changes, and pulsatile tinnitus, with, but with a normal MRI. It is diagnosed by opening pressures on an LP with normal CSF. Treatment is usually medications 
such as acetazolamide, but there are surgical options too if medical management doesn't work or if vision is already impaired at presentation. So that is IH. Fabulous. We hope you enjoyed everyone. Should we end? Often we do a best and worst of the week or what are you looking forward to or something on our own podcast. So Anne, what are you looking forward to this week? Yeah, so not much to look forward to because at time of recording we are in lockdown, but um, it'll be good to do something a bit different. So I'm on relieving at the moment and I get to do some peat surge next week, which is kind of nice, I think. Yeah, a change is as good as a holiday, Anne. I reckon, <laughs> I reckon. I did mostly orthopedics last week, so that was good. What are you looking forward to this week? I At the moment, I'm on Peds ED, which is a nice change of pace. I'm looking forward to, I feel like I really like all the medical things and the viral wheeze and the asthma and blah, 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 but all the kind of injuries, musculoskeletal stuff I usually dread, but I feel like I'm finally starting to get okay at plastering. That's good. <laughs> you know how you, pl- you put a pl- cast on or something and then you're just like you know, you do the right one and it serves a function, but it's just so ugly and it just looks so just not super neat and smooth and things. Anyway, I feel like that's how mine have looked for the first couple of weeks. And you just know they're going to go to ortho clinic and the ortho boards are just going to laugh at your cast (laughs) (laughs) because I know that they do that because I've been in ortho clinic as a student, but I finally feel like I'm getting the hang of them and maybe ortho won't laugh quite as hard at my cast when the kids turn up to (laughs) clinic in two or three weeks. So that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to finally, you know, liking the opportunity to do a cast on a child to break up the day. That's good. That's great. Sounds like you're having a great time (laughs) in PZD. I'm getting there. I'm actually, I'm enjoying it. It's, It's different to, I'm not an ED person. I went into medicine wanting to do ED and then just fell in love with peds kind of once I started actually working um, in a mixed ED actually and then saw kids and I was like, oh, wait, this is what I want to do. Um, but, you know, it, it's, an, it's a good change of pace. You get to do quite a lot. Everyone's really nice. So I like that part of it. It's great. Well, on that happy note, thank you again to Synapse for having us. Guys, if you would like to see some of what we do, please feel free to follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our podcast as well. And I, we hope that you have a really great week. Mm. I feel like we should play our exit music Yeah, now. I know. I was just thinking that. Just to make it feel authentic. Yeah, I know. <laughs> See you guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>